I'm James Gardner, host of Your History, Your Story, a podcast for everybody who loves stories about interesting people and events told by those who uncovered them from within their own family trees. This, we hope, will inspire you to discover and celebrate your history and your story. Grover Cleveland, whose full name was Stephen Grover Cleveland, was the only president of the United States to serve two non-consecutive terms in office and was the only president born in the state of New Jersey. In this episode titled, My Grandfather, President Grover Cleveland, Grover's grandson, George Cleveland, will share stories about his grandfather, including highlights of his presidency, his love of hunting and fishing, and his strong belief in fulfilling his responsibilities. George will also include stories about his grandmother, Frances Folsom Cleveland, who, at age 21, became the youngest First Lady of the United States. I'd now like to welcome George to our show. James, thank you. It is great to be here with you today. George, I have been a big presidential history buff since I was a little kid. I used to study the presidents and read up on them. And I actually live one mile away from the house where your grandfather was born back in 1837. That's great. That's great. A neighbor. <laughs> I'm a neighbor. Yes. I can't tell you how many times I drive by it, particularly when I'm going to Dunkin' Donuts. That's right. <laughs> and I pointed out to my grandson all the time. I'm trying to get him interested in history. But George, it is now the year 2021. Mm-hmm. And I am speaking with not the great grandson or great-great-grandson, but the grandson of a man who was president of the United States in the 1880s and 1890s. Can you tell us how is that possible? Yes, I can do that. Grover was born in 1837, and he met my grandmother prenatally, really, because she was the daughter of his former law partner. They married in the White House when Grover was 48 or 49, and she was 21. And then my father was born in 1897. He met and married my mother in 1943 when she was teaching his children from his first marriage. So there was another quarter century gap there. So really what we did was drop two generations. I have nieces and nephews that are older than I am. So that's pretty much how it worked. And, you know, the Tyler family is, you know, did similar thing. So I don't know, it was something in an old well in Washington water. I don't, I, I don't know. <laughs> Definitely. So that kind of explains it. Yeah. It's, it's a weird. very, very fascinating to think just how you can leap over so many decades in just three generations. Yep. It is. It is. So George, I want to start by asking you, where were you born and where did you grow up? And what can you tell us about your mother and your father who was son of Grover Cleveland. Right. I was born in Baltimore, Maryland, and that is where my father had moved. He was an an attorney there, and he had done some newspaper writing and not an insignificant amount of political dabbling, too. He was always asked to do things because of his relationship. And my mother was an only child. She's the daughter of a um, Scottish sea captain and his wife, and he ran away to sea from Cucumbershire, Scotland. He ran away to sea when he was 14, sailed around the Horn. I knew him. I can still remember some of the great stories about St. Elmo's fire and that kind of thing. And he had something like 12 or 13 siblings. And my grandmother had some had about the equal numbers. And we got cousins all over Scotland. 
And I often tell people that, yeah, it's interesting being the grandson of a president, but my great uncle George was the mouth organ champion of Great Britain, George Maxwell was. So I mean, that's, <laughs> that's pretty impressive. And there's apparently the harmonica is even on display at a museum over there. That's where I grew up and I went away to school during high school and then I moved to Boston and then my family had always had a, a summer house in New Hampshire where I live now. And they moved there because their house on the Cape, on Cape Cod in Bourne, first they built the Cape Cod Canal through the backyard. So that bummed everybody out. <laughs> and then my Aunt Ruth, my great Aunt Ruth, Grover and Francis's first child, died in a diphtheria epidemic. I think it was in 1903. So there were a lot of very sad memories for them on the Cape. So they ended up coming to New Hampshire and a bunch of us have now become fixtures. Ah, I see. Now, your dad was, if I checked out the math right, I think your dad was only about 11 years old when his father, Grover Cleveland, passed away. Correct. He had a younger brother, too, my Uncle Francis. Uncle Francis. Did your dad ever tell you anything, any stories about his memories of his dad? You know, sometimes that gets confusing because um, my father passed away in 19... 74. So there are some stories that were around, you know, sometimes he didn't like to talk about them. My uncle Francis, he was too young. And I always told him if he had stories, he made them up. My father, basically, you know, he remembered going fishing and hunting with my grandfather, because that was Grover Cleveland's a number one love in life was to go fishing and hunting. He even wrote a, a book with a collection of essays on the subject called fishing and shooting sketches. And he was very serious about it. So the famous story that I tell a lot, just because it is kind of funny, because Grover was not known as like a big buffo one-liner kind of guy. Everybody thinks him being pretty serious. And apparently they're having dinner there. They lived in Princeton at the time. This is after the presidency, Princeton, New Jersey. They're having a dinner party. And my grandmother went to my grandfather and said, can we please have a dinner where you don't talk about guns? He said, okay. He said, I will not bring up guns unless someone else does. And she said, good, thank you. So he then goes to the butler and said, okay, look, he said, here's a gun, here's my shotgun, 45 minutes into dinner, touch this off out the back door. So everybody's sitting, having a pleasant dinner and suddenly there's this kablam and Grover goes, ah, he said, speaking of guns. <clears throat> so um, some of us have dry senses of humor. I think that that's probably where it had its genesis. Yes, I would say so. So when you were growing up, you had this home, was that, did you say it was a vacation home that was out on the Cape? Yes, it was. Yeah, beautiful, beautiful spot. Somebody is actually a contractor, a uh, general contractor has actually rebuilt a house very similar to it. It was known as Great Gables on the footprint of the house. It's absolutely gorgeous. I had the opportunity to see it a few years ago. Wow, that must be really cool to see. How old were you when you started to maybe take a little bit of an interest in your famous grandfather? When I began to wonder who is the guy in that big, huge portrait in the living room. And I honestly, though, James, I have no recollection of when it first dawned on me that he was president and why that would or would not be a big deal. Hmm. Um, I did get in trouble from time to time for throwing spitballs at that portrait by Andrew Zorn, which is now in the National Portrait Gallery. But I will have to tell you a quick, funny story, though. That portrait used to be in our house in Baltimore. It was there when you walked into the front door. My Uncle Francis ran a theater, which is still the oldest professional summer theater in the United States, the Barnstormers 
he was good friends with Joseph Cotton. Joseph Cotton was touring one year, this is before my time, in uh, Philadelphia story with Catherine Hepburn. And he called up my father and said, you know, it's, said, let's have cocktails after the theater. And would it be okay if I brought Miss Hepburn? He was going to say no to that. So, you know, they arrive at the appointed hour and come in and Catherine Hepburn looks up at the picture and goes, my, what a marvelous portrait of President Taft. <laughs> so, but they did look alike. I totally get that. It's okay. I forgave her years ago for that. Uh, I think what I've read was that your grandfather was the second heaviest president next to President Taft. Taft apparently had to have a special bathtub put in, as I recall. But we used to have a trunk in our house in Tamworth that had a lot of Grover's clothes in it. And one of everybody's favorite items to play with was a pair of his long underwear bottoms. And three of us could fit into it. And um, it was, I think we measured, it was 56 inches. He was what we call, I think then the term was portly. Now, George, you look a lot facially like your grandfather. I'm sure a lot oh, of people have told you that. Big points for saying facially. Um, <laughs> right. No, that is absolutely true. I, I mean, there are also, I've even portrayed him from time to time. And, and fortunately, I still have to stick a pillow under my shirt to get the full effect. I did it a lot for historical societies and schools and the local Democratic Party, an annual thing they call the Cleveland Dinner, just because he was the nearest famous Democrat that lived here. But it's fun. And I dress up. There you go. Exactly. So when you, at some point, you decided that you wanted to find out more about your grandfather, how did you learn about him? Did you learn primarily from family uh, recollections or did you research him yourself? It was hard. The older litter of siblings, they had gotten, having been able to spend more time with my father and his siblings, they handed down a lot of stories. Um, not a lot, actually. They handed down stories. And then the rest, I really had to kind of dig up by myself. And I'd say in the last 15 years or so, I've learned a lot by talking to people who are history fans like yourself and people listening to this podcast. Because you never know when you're, there's some incredible nugget um, that you don't know about. And that's a lot of fun, is learning more stuff. Because there's never an end to it. I mean, my great uncle's Civil War service has been fascinating to me. I went and got their records from the government. And one went in in Indiana, the other went in in New York. And they were both lost. They were going to, um, they were sailing to the Bahamas after the war. And we're going to open a resort hotel. They were going to run a resort hotel that already existed. And unfortunately, the ship they were on blew up somewhere on the way to the Bahamas, and they were lost at sea. I often wonder, so how would my life have been, you know, if we had Bahamian hotels in, in our family? We'd be doing this, this interview on the beach, I'm sure. Oh, definitely. George, is there anything that you could share with us? This may be a tough question, other than the, the long johns that were size, what, 56? Yeah. <laughs> Is there any tidbit about your grandfather that would be something that you wouldn't find readily in a history book right now that you might be able to share with us? Whoa. Um, well, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting because there are several books have come out about him recently. And I know of a couple in the works. I know one really big one that's, that's I mean, in terms just of size mm -hmm. that's coming out. And a lot of people are interested in him because of the fact that were he in politics today, he'd probably be a libertarian or darn close to it. He was a big, less government man. 
as far as things that, you know, have I made an astonishing discovery that perhaps no one else knew? Not yet, but you never know. I spend a lot of time in Buffalo, although not since COVID started. And he was sheriff of Erie County, mayor of Buffalo. And then he, because he went mayor, governor, president, bang, 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 really fast. And there's a lot of people in Buffalo who have been there for a long time, whose families were involved in the form of Buffalo was what at one point the busiest port in America or second busiest. There is so much history out there. Buffalonians are now have started taking a big interest in their history. So I fully expect some more things to appear. I also have not yet completely waded through the so-called Grover Cleveland papers that the Library of Congress or the archives always get mixed up and I should not do that, recently made available online. Mm -hmm. And um, one of the reasons why I haven't gone through it is because his handwriting was awful. I mean, he makes a doctor look like a calligrapher. Um, <laughs> and so it's really hard to read, but some of it's very mundane stuff, but I'm hoping I can glean something there. I've always been particularly interested in Grover's involvement with attempting to turn back our overthrow of Hawaii. And I've actually been invited. I've gone to Hawaii now three or four times and spent time with Native Hawaiians and Hawaiian historians about how important he was to what he tried to do to get Queen Liliuokalani reinstated as queen. And it was a huge disappointment to him. I do know that that he was not able to get, as I keep calling it, get the overthrow overthrown. So I've learned a lot there, but I mean, there's so many things, you know, history is, I always think of the last scene of Indiana Jones, the first Indiana Jones movie, where they show you that, that scene of the museum that goes on, you know, which is like, I always picture that as the underground of the Smithsonian. And it goes on for, it looks like miles. And there's stuff in there that nobody's opened in decades, if not centuries. So who knows what has yet to be discovered? I have a friend who's a history author, William Marvel. He won the Lincoln Prize a few years back. And he was doing some research at the, at the Yale Library and found a letter signed by President Lincoln. It's kind of there amongst the papers. So, I mean, there's still stuff out there. That's why I cringe whenever I see things, people throw things away. It's just, yeah. I'm just this side of a hoarder sometimes because it's, I said, there might be something important in there, you know, which is like number one sign that you're, headed down the border pole. I'm open to it. And let's put it this way. I'm open to anything anybody has to say if we can prove it. Got to have the proof. Yeah. I think the thing with history, I mean, I've had people say to me, ah, oh, I was a history major in college and people would say, well, what do you, I mean, you're, you're studying stuff that's already happened. It's dead. It's over with. Why are you interested in that? Oh, it's so, it's so wrong. Oh, stabbing me in the heart. History is alive. It's constantly renewing itself with new research. We ignore history at our peril. You know, everything, I realize there is no H in STEM, but there should be. And because, I mean, if you're learning the science, technology, engineering, and math, you still have to have a certain knowledge of, of history. You know, where did these things that you were studying originate? How did they come to be? What was life like then? I spend a lot of time talking to school kids, trying to get them interested in it. And I've, I've been very involved with the National History Day program, particularly in New York State and most particularly in, in Western New York. And, you know, a few years ago, well, 10 or 11 now, I gave the so-called keynote speech at the New York History Day Awards in Cooperstown. And there were 500 kids in there, James, in this auditorium screaming about history 
you know, like they were at a pep rally. And I said, you know, my thing was how many of, of you know, whoever wins here today, how many of you will go back to your towns and get the fire trucks leading you back into town? How many of you will meet with your mayors? Very, very few. And we miss so much. When I get hooked into something and I start reading people's comments on some kind of social media and it, it just kills me, I said, that happened, you know, only 60 years ago. I said, and you would see the same thing happen. And, you know, the old thing about if you don't know it, you're doomed to repeat yourself. What could be truer? We're seeing this every single day. Churchill, his great admonition was, you know, study history for in it lie all the secrets of statecraft. If you want to know how things work now, find out how they work then. And you'll be several steps up. If I had my druthers, I would really just love to work with National History Day full time and run around and just try and get kids interested in it. Because it's not, history now is needs to be so much more, I mean, you know, you memorized all the presidents backwards and forwards. I don't think anybody has done that in years. But to do more than just the memorization, to experience history, if you take a kid and say, have them standing someplace, say, do you know what happened on this spot in 1842? And then give them an amazing fact and they go, wow, really? And then that's going to lead them into like looking up something else and looking up something else and eventually getting bitten by the bug. Soapbox got a little high there, but it is, it's, it is something that just, it just frustrates the hell out of me. I agree. And I, I see sometimes when you get little kids and you see a spark of interest in them for history and you could just see it in their eyes and you say, this kid, girl or boy is interested in this stuff. And you could just see it in their eyes. And I just love to be able to sort of feed that and say, hey, keep learning history. You could just, there's so many topics. It's not just the civil war. It's not just presidents. It's not just medieval history. It never ends the supply of books and knowledge and research. So I'm climbing up on the soapbox myself. I think one of the favorite trivia questions for trivia nights, or I think it's, it's probably too simple for Jeopardy at this point, but it's who is the only president to serve two non-consecutive terms? That's the giveaway one. Yeah. yeah, that's the giveaway one. Grover Cleveland. And we know in that case, from what I've studied, that Grover Cleveland's first term was from 1885 to 1889, and the second from 1893 to 1897. He wasn't sure if presidents should serve a third term because he had been approached about running in 1896. And he remember he told my grandmother that, well, presidents shouldn't serve three times. So when Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt was president, my grandmother did not vote for him in, I guess it would have been 1940, mm -hmm. but she did vote for him in 1944. And apparently my older brothers and sisters said, well, I thought, you know, you weren't supposed to vote to be president again like that. I said, well, your grandfather said three times, but never said anything about running four times. So she voted for Roosevelt in his last election. Your grandfather had a uh, Benjamin Harrison in between his terms. But I want to ask you some other questions. For instance, I've read that Grover Cleveland was well known to be a man of great honesty and integrity. Yeah, to the point where it, it almost, especially in our present, in our 20th, 21st century zone, it baffles, the, bottles the mind. But apparently, yeah, he was honest to a fault, even if it meant that it was going to be detrimental to him. And I do know that he did have a very deep 
set of spiritual beliefs and he followed those. And it said that, you know, he didn't read a lot, but it said he did read the, except for the Bible. So I've been told. And he was a workaholic. So he did probably didn't have time for reading and didn't like the press at all. I've read that when he was sheriff of Erie County, that he actually performed the executioner duties for at least two people. For two. He did that because usually a deputy did that. But he said, he apparently, if I remember correctly, he found the act distasteful, but it was the law. And But he said a subordinate shouldn't have to do the dirty work. So he pulled the lever himself. Again, there's the integrity there. Right. There is a story that while your grandfather was rising in the political circles, that there was purported to be an illegitimate child right. of his. Can you tell us how his integrity sort of shone through in that as well? Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's not a cop-out answer, but I wasn't there, you know, and I, he never wrote about it. Apparently, you know, there's no question that there was this child that was born to this woman, Maria Halpin. Grover said he never confirmed or denied it, but he did take care of the child. He looked after him financially. And the child went on to, he didn't marry, he went on to become a very well-known uh, gynecologist in the Western New York area, as was his adopted father. So I hope someday that I will be able to get together with some of that family and that we can find a way to solve what is basically a history mystery. Of course, the other thing is, is I don't have a dog in the fight on this thing. Because also that there is a theory that if it was not Grover that was the father, it could have been my great-grandfather, Oscar Folsom. And that's kind of a, a party line that some of my family has always held with. There is a dreadfully incorrect book that came out not too long ago on the subject. It'd be nice to rectify some of the boo-boos there. But it'd be nice to know. It would be you know a fascinating thing to know. Grover was the only unmarried member of his like rat pack in Buffalo. He was a rock and roller. Buffalo then was an amazing, I mean, it's still an amazing place. But back then, you know, it was it was a Western terminus of the Erie Canal. There was crime and just the most amazing characters. Grover got in fights when I think it was when he was mayor. He was in a like a fight outside a bar in Buffalo. So, but it did give rise to the um the very famous Mama, where's my pa? And the um cry and the refrain to that was gone to the White House, ha, ha, ha. And there was another one about hooray for the mother, hooray for the kid. I voted for Cleveland and damn glad I did. So at the moment, that's a history mystery. But again, it's it's something I would like to, to try and solve. Yeah, you wonder with the DNA stuff going on now with uh, people getting these kits so readily, maybe that that might be solved. Well, I actually looked into that very seriously. And there are some hurdles that are in the process of being hurdled. So I'd like to try and get some of those dialogues started up as soon as possible. Because it's finally, I mean, I've talked about this for years, finally got it going and then wham. So um, can't really go anywhere or do anything. Hopefully come late summer, we'll be able to rev something up again. Good, I'll be looking forward to hearing what comes oh, of that. Oh, me too. Yeah. And don't forget Baby Ruth. Yes, I want to hear about Baby Ruth. Okay, well, between the terms, Ruth was born and she was known as Baby Ruth. 
unfortunately, as I said earlier, she, you know, she did pass away from the diphtheria epidemic when she was 13 or 14. Oh, awful. Um, but the Curtis Candy Company claimed that they, you know, this candy bar was named after, after her. Oddly enough, the heavy marketing didn't really start on that till a certain baseball player came to national prominence. A friend of mine that lives out in, in Avon, New York, is one of the largest collectors of all things Grover, Francis, and Baby Ruth on the planet, maybe in the universe. And he has ads for the Baby Ruth candy bar that predate George Herman Ruth. So um, Time Magazine said, said, no, it wasn't named after her. So, But remember what Ogden Nash once said of Time Magazine, clear, concise, and inaccurate. So I'll sort of go with that. You know, every now and then I have a Baby Ruth and it has a special special place in my heart. I love baby Ruth, by the way. So they're great. They're great. Your dentist loves you eating them too, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, so we're voting that that the candy bar is named after your great aunt. Right, right. Definitely. Definitely. I like yeah. that story. One of my family tried to get residuals out of it, at least from a, like, at least get a couple of boxes of candy bars, but that didn't work. So <laughs> so George, you mentioned a couple of times about your grandmother, Cleveland. I read that she was the youngest first lady at age 21? Grover proposed to her by letter. And um, which I don't know if everybody did that or not, but that's, that's what happened. Rather than get the press to talking, she and her mother went off to Europe for a while. And the excuse was always given, she went off to buy her trousseau. Well, the press all thought that when they heard rumors about marrying Miss Folsom, they thought it was Francis Folsom's mother, Emma, that he was marrying, which would have been, you know, more age appropriate, depending on what one feels is age appropriate. But aha, that was not the case. They had a great time. It wasn't long enough. She was an unusual character. She, you know, she was a graduate of Wells College. You know, she was not a suffragette. She did not, as did my grandfather, believe that women should vote. She was uh, involved to some degree with the Women's Christian Temperance Union, but she did not outlaw cocktails in the White House. She was quietly involved in so many things. The American Needlework Guild, I believe, she helped start drives that got thousands and thousands of socks and mittens knitted, kind of like we were making masks yeah. during the pandemic. It was apparently just a complete and total delight by all those who knew her. And, you know, unfortunately, I missed her by a few years. But my older siblings, you know, all of whom are gone now, just always spoke glowingly about Granny. So she's very much a, a force in our, in our lives. And there's, you know, there's one book that's been written about her, Frank, by Annette Dunlop. And I know that there is another one I hear of in the wings, too, at some point. She got Alan Nevins to write his biography and Grover Cleveland, I think it's Grover Cleveland, a study in courage. You know, and that one, the Pulitzer Prize. But there are some gaps there. It's kind of like the Nixon tapes. There's, there's a few gaps that, because she did have editorial control, which is to us in this day and age, a little mysterious. But she did, and I wish I knew her. And she was a glorious woman. She was the first first lady to remarry before Jackie Onassis. And she just loved spending you know, her time in Princeton and in, up in Tamworth, New Hampshire. That's where she really loved to be. And theater, both she and Grover were huge theater fans. And all the great actors and actresses of that day, I mean, they wouldn't miss a show. 
you know, Edwin Booth, they were, my grandfather was a founder of the Players Club. When I found, there's something, I didn't know that, just about dropped on that one. Very good friends with Edwin Booth. I've actually got my grandmother's birthday book and it's got Edwin Booth's signature, you know, tipped in there. But Majeska and, and Joseph Jefferson was a neighbor on the Cape and a huge friend. He made the part of Rip Van Winkle famous. When my uncle and aunt started the Barnstormers Theater, she was a tremendous supporter of that. Because, you know, there are some nights my uncle would say, you know, you'd stand out on the porch there of the theater and kind of like wonder if you could hear one more car coming. It was, um, <laughs> they're great. And it's just, it's fascinating to be able to learn more about them. Yeah. And your, and your grandmother was also like the, the fashion plate, right? Isn't she the one that everybody looked to for the latest fashions that I hear? Well, yeah, apparently she could wear anything. It is said, although some people deny this, that because of her fashion sense, the bustle disappeared from women's dresses. Yet it's also interesting that Grover's sister, Rose, was apparently quite fashionable too. She was the White House hostess until uh, for the first couple of years. And I think she was also hostess in, in Albany, New York, when he was governor. And she was known to you know, cut quite a figure with her fashion as well. So, um, so I don't know. It's all I know is I can tell you that when, when we were cleaning out um, my parents' house in Baltimore after my mother died, and I got a bill from a storage company, I said, you know, what is this? Mm -hmm. And we went, and there were two giant steamer trunks of her clothes, all in remarkable condition. And they're now all housed in appropriate museums, but they're just beautiful. A lot made in Maryland, some some in Paris that maybe she got on that trip that she went on before they got married. Yeah, she was she was quite a piece of work. Those are wonderful stories. I wanted to ask you about something that your grandfather dealt with was a health problem when he was president. I think it was during his second term. Right, right. The famous jaw operation. Yeah, what was that about? He had developed a, um, during the, when he came in for the second administration, he had developed a pain in his jaw. And there was some kind of, it turned out there was a kind of tumor situation going on there. Now, this is after President Grant's very publicized um, bout and death that was basically due to an oral cancer mm. and how incredibly painful and unpleasant that was for, for President Grant. So Grover arranged basically a secret operation on a friend's boat sailing from Greenwich to, uh, up, to, um, up to Buzzard Bay. And they took out a piece of his jaw, put in a vulcanized rubber piece. I can't imagine it was particularly fun. And, um, and he was able to make a speech in two weeks. And uh, I've met the tumor. It's at the Mutter Museum in Philadelphia. Really? Uh, yes, I did an episode of the show, Mysteries at the Museum. So I was like introduced to my grand tumor. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but it was a um, it was a big secret, and some member of the press leaked it, and he was basically blackballed. There is an excellent book, one of the best histories I've read, that has so much in it. It's called "The President Is a Sick Man" by Matthew Algio, and it's the tale of that operation. I also have the book on the operation by the doctor who performed it. But that was, I mean, then the president could actually sort of disappear. But most of the press was appeased. Because, you know, back then, you know, any kind of dental surgery struck terror into the hearts of everyone. So everybody kind of empathized with him. Wow, that is an interesting story. I didn't 
hear all that detail before, but I knew that there was a secret operation and I yep. heard it was probably you know, many years later before we even found out about it. So it was, a it was about 20, 25 years, I think, before the beans got spilled. Wow. George, how do you think your grandfather's presidency has been handled by historians? That is a hard question because it depends on the historian. You know, what is their bet? What are they looking for? You know, I mean, you talk about things I didn't know. Um, he was honored by the New Jersey Chamber of Commerce a couple of years ago because of his contribution to the United States Navy. Now, Cleveland wasn't a war president, but during his administration, he built up the Navy to such a degree that we had an advantage when the First World War started. And that was a result of Grover Cleveland's shipbuilding initiative, which I, I didn't know that. <laughs> you know, I did not know that. So, James, it's a very hard question to answer. It really depends. You know, a lot of presidents are judged modern day who were president a long time ago are judged by certain modern day standards, which of course isn't really particularly fair. Yeah. Um, because I think people then, right or wrong in our present day window, in most cases, I think they tried to do the best they could with what they had. Sometimes what they had wasn't a lot. Right. Um, I think it will just, it will, you know, a lot of boring things happened while Grover was president. There's, as my uncle Francis used to tell me, that one of Grover's big things was the tariff. And my uncle said, you know, I have no idea what the tariff is all about. <laughs> and, you know, my uncle Francis was a smart guy. So, yeah, I mean, I will never understand his tariff regulations and rules. And sure. that's okay. Oh, and that's okay. But he, right. he did, from what I know, he fought corruption. Oh, Lord. Oh, God, they hated him. Yeah. He oh, yeah. Corruption. No, that that's, no, he tried, he really wouldn't wouldn't stand for any of that and um, Tammany Hall stuff and and back then you know there were as many newspapers as we have TV stations now mm -hmm. um, you know every town had like 90 papers and each one had their own agenda and as could be said of some news programs today they had no qualms about maybe altering the truth to suit the tastes of their readership I don't know. We'll just have to kind of see what the, the future goes and then let it rip and let his, Al Smith said, you know, look at my record, look at the record. It will be important to some and not as important to others. Well, thank you for that. I'll be waiting for more information to come out about your grandfather and our native son here in New Jersey, because we're pulling for him. We're pulling for his uh, reputation in the history books, because I did hear always that he was a very hardworking President. Oh, yeah. Oh, he'd answer the phone himself. And a lot of letters, you know, he wrote himself until I think my grandmother put her foot because he was cheap. Um, <laughs> and so he didn't want to hire a whole bunch of people. And finally, she, you know, put her foot down and said, you got to get somebody in here to do these letters. You can sign them, but, you know, be serious. So George, when did your grandfather pass away? And where is he buried? He passed away in 1908 in Princeton. You know, basically, I think it was congestive heart failure, if I remember correctly, was the official reasoning. And he's buried there. His grave does not say he was president. He didn't want that. And it's a very quiet, nice, peaceful, beautiful spot and family all around it. Yeah, I'm going to have to visit. I've never visited his grave. Oh, my Lord, you must do that. You yeah. must do that. And it's interesting because frequently, and I think it's still there, the, a group of my friends from Hawaii came regularly because they had an initiative that was funded 
about Cleveland Lilio Kalani reconciliation, and we do ceremonies at Grover's grave and at the university uh, in the Cleveland Tower. And so people, I often get emails from people saying, why are there seashells on Grover Cleveland's grave? And it, they were part of um, lays that were left there by the, by the Hawaiians. So um, well, that's cool. That's a cool story. George, how would you say your life has been impacted by having Grover Cleveland as your grandfather? It has enabled me to meet some extraordinarily interesting people and get into some extraordinarily fascinating situations. It's, you know, I've gotten to meet a lot of other presidential descendants, some of whom have become very good friends. And, you know, you get invited to some good parties. <laughs> it's, um, <laughs> it's, it's just, you know, it's a sense of history. I mean, people say, what's it like having a president as a grandfather? I don't know, because I don't know anything else. You know, I remind people that I had maternal grandparents too, that were pretty yeah. cool. Got it. And what do you think your grandfather would have wanted his legacy to be? <gasps> what his last words apparently were, I've tried so hard to do the right. Oh, that wraps it up. Yeah, that's oh. absolutely the last word from Grover. <laughs> well, I'm going to finish by asking you, when do you think you might be able to come down and visit your grandfather's birthplace again? in Caldwell. You know, I'd like to, I don't know if the ice cream social will happen this year or not. I'd love to try and come down for that. I want to see the work that's been done on the visitor center. And, you know, I'll be spending some time with board member Louis McCone um, out in Missouri. He's coming out there with me. So, we'll, you know, as soon as I can get out of here. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> that'd, be, that'd be wonderful. And I know that there's some great things going on there with the visitor's center and there's uh, the Grover Cleveland Birthplace Memorial Association. It's very active. Oh, yes. Boy, they've yep. gotten me into some fancy, fancy, bizarre events. I'll tell uh, you that. It's great. Uh, the website, by the way, for the association is www.presidentcleveland.org. Sharon Farrell is the caretaker of your grandfather's birthplace. She's an amazing, knowledgeable lady. I wonder if anybody knows more about it than than she does. She we did um, C-SPAN's American President series of some years back, and you know, and she just like broke into uh, one of Grover's campaign songs live on the air. That was a lot of fun. She is a true historical treasure. Yeah, she is. She she knows so much about President Cleveland, and it's right at the tip of her tongue. Absolutely. Well, George, this has been a really fun experience. We're going to talk it up so more and more people can become aware of your grandfather, what he did for this nation, what kind of a man he was, and keep learning about him. It's fun. Bottom line, it's all fun. It is fun. And George, thank you again. We can't wait to see you when you're down here. I want to see you dressed up as Grover Cleveland. Well, I'm sure we'll think of some way of doing that. Got to first. Well, thank you again, George. Thank you. So, for all of our listeners, keep discovering and telling stories that inspire you and others. Have a great day. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Your History, Your Story. Please subscribe, share, and check out our website at yourhistoryyourstory.com for episode notes and bonus content. We'd love to hear from you if you have any questions, comments, or a story to tell. Be well and God bless.